Good morning. So our scripture reading for this morning is in two places. So maybe what you can do is turn in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided in the pew right in front of you, um, the black book there. Uh, And you can find the texts on page 966. Maybe stick your finger there, because that's the second one we're going to read. So 966. And then the first text we're going to read is from Revelation 21, which is easy to find, because just go to the back of your Bible and then um, come back a couple pages. It's the second to the last chapter in the Bible, page 1041 in the Pew Bible. So we're going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5 first, and then 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. And if you wouldn't mind, stand with me as I read in honor of God's holy word. Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have all passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now flip back to 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 17 to 21. The five is the big number and the 17 is the little number. That's the verse. Big number is the chapter. So 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if he's a Christian, he or she is a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, if you uh, could turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. It's a letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote. The Apostle Paul wrote to a guy named Titus. 
And you can actually find that book on page 998 in the Pew Bible, uh, if you're using that. So while you're turning there, I want you to just think about the fact that all is not well in our world. I doubt that I need to twist anybody's arm to believe that. Terrorist attacks, cyber attacks, economic instability, health threats, racism, on and on. All is not well in our world. But it's not just out there. The problems are not just out there. It's not that all is not right in the world out there. Also, in here, all is not well. In our inner world, like our little tiny world, our interiority, our thoughts and our desires, don't we all know shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and twisted desires and on and on we could go. So one of our defense mechanisms, if you've ever noticed this, when maybe you begin to become aware of your messiness within, is we like to shift the spotlight from our inner turmoil. We focus on, we focus our critique, our disgust on all the failed and messed up people and institutions around us. It shifts the spotlight. It's kind of uncomfortable to have your mess exposed. So it's nice to just be able to focus on somebody else's mess. But that strategy doesn't do anything towards settling our troubled souls, right? In fact, it actually can make things worse. It can make us more self-righteous or more hypercritical or bitter or grumbly or discontent or angry. Well, (laughs) I've got some really good news. This morning, God is intensely interested in freeing us from all that inner turmoil and bringing order and fullness where there is chaos and emptiness. So he can bring that to our interior world, the world of our relationships as well, and he's also bringing the day when the whole world will experience the renewal and peace, and all will be well. That day is coming. So our text actually shows how he's going to do this, how he does do this. But the first thing that we need to do is we actually need to be willing to look in the mirror. Okay, so Titus um, chapter 3, and I know that we're kind of parachuting into one of the letters in the New Testament here. Into chapter 3, we're not starting in the first Chapter. So, for those of you that are unfamiliar with this territory, um, Apostle Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, is writing a letter to a younger pastor type guy, a guy named Titus, that he was mentoring. And he's writing to help him know how to be a good pastor in a place called Crete, a young church that Paul had probably planted. He's writing to him to give him advice and help on how to lead well in the church. So Crete was this little island in the Mediterranean Sea. So the thought really begins at verse 1. Why don't you look at 3.1 so that we can catch the, the flow of thought here. He writes to him and says, Remind them, the church there, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So these are some of the things that the Cretans, the Cretan Christians... 
little young fledgling church, they needed to learn. Okay, they were naturally a pretty rowdy bunch. Okay, Crete was known for this. It's kind of like a biker gang coming to Jesus. Okay, so they had, they had things that needed to change, just like all of us. They needed to know what it looked like to trust in Jesus and follow him. But Paul doesn't just say to them, Titus, tell them to stop it. Like, be better Christians. Come on. He doesn't just give bald commands like that. Paul knows where real change comes from. It doesn't come from bald commands and guilt trips and mere moralism. Do better. Stop it. Try harder. You better clean up your act. True change only takes root when it begins down at the roots, in our hearts, okay, where our desires and our values begin to change. That's where the good news of Christianity is intended to do its work. Okay, so now we're ready to look here at verse 3 in the mirror that shows us what's in our soul. So look at verse 3. Paul includes himself and Titus in this when he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So you don't have to answer me, but do you like looking in the mirror? Most people don't like what they see in the mirror. And it's not just you know, us normal people, even, you know, there's articles and, you know, women who've done TED Talks that are supermodels that say some of the most insecure people on the planet are what we would think are the ideal. So body image is a huge issue in our world, equally so for both men and women. The ideal body shapes and looks and haircuts and wardrobes bombard us from everywhere. And so many of us so often are so dissatisfied and so insecure and so envious and so sad and so discouraged that we hardly ever feel good about looking good. We wish we could. But all that frustration and inner turmoil over the outer shell is a distraction from our deepest ugliness. We actually need to look deeper. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's showing us the mirror that looks past our skin and body shape to the shape of our soul. We need to realize and remember the deformity of our soul. This is who we are by nature. So remember it says were, okay? In verse 3 there, we ourselves were. So if you're a Christian, it's who you were. But it's important not to forget who you were. Otherwise, you might think that you're better than someone else. And then you're not going to treat them with perfect courtesy, right? Like it says in verse 2. I think, I mean, we ought to be honest with ourselves. There's enough residual (laughs) of these characteristics that ought to remind us regularly who we were, right? Keep us humble. So, our society, many of your neighbors, many of your maybe family members, friends, co-workers, probably have some pretty negative connotations with Christianity. And maybe some of it's a false caricature, but you know what? Some of it might be for good reason, because Christians oftentimes really poorly represent Christ and the gospel. But when the gospel really takes root, we begin to show perfect courtesy. 
So that word can also be translated gentleness, humility. It was used in reference to Christ, like his character. We begin to show perfect courtesy to all people because we know we're no better than anybody else. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first off, we're really glad that you're here. You're welcome here. Second, I urge you to look in this mirror and not turn away too quickly. Okay, do you see yourself here? Does this sound, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes and think back before I became a Christian. Does this list sound quaint to you? Does it sound patronizing like a nitpicky religious parent with a child? I mean, look at that list. Foolish, disobedient, you know, pat me on the head, led astray. I'm, I'm my own person, you know? Slaves, the, is, this, is that, how does that sound to you? Well, lest you turn away from this mirror without giving it a serious look, consider this. Does any of, any of you know who David Foster Wallace was? Okay, I, I saw one nod over here, that's good. Um, so he was a professor of English and creative writing, a secular American writer, he actually committed suicide in 2008 at 46. But he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and it's become somewhat well-known. And in it, he's actually trying to encourage the graduates not to be kind of hypercritical prigs. Um, but he does so by painting this picture. So just listen to this as, by way of an example of Titus 3.3. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging job and you work hard for eight or ten hours and at the end of the day you're tired and somewhat stressed and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the workday, so getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is crowded because, of course, it's a time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but eventually you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lines open, even though it's the end-of-the-day rush. So the checkout line's incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. Okay? So you're supposed to, like, identify with this. Hopefully you can. Um, and then he writes this. My natural default setting... So he's... This is a secular guy. Doesn't believe Christianity. My, my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and about my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. And then on the drive home, I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles, driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. And I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate and how spoiled and stupid and selfish and disgusting we all are and how modern consumer society just sucks and so forth and so on. You get the idea. Unquote. I mean, can you leave yourself totally out of that Scenario? No, the point is it's, it's kind of normal because we ourselves once were foolish. 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So what do we do about this inner deformity of soul? If we look in the mirror, and we're honest with ourselves, what do we do with that? Your inner moral flabbiness or your inner moral disabilities, what do you do with that? Buy a magazine in that grocery store line to get your mind off the stupid cow-like, dead-eyed non-humans around you? You know, the promise is seven keys to inner peace. I mean, seriously. So I looked, at, I just was like, okay, what's on the magazine shelf? All right, ready? Popular magazines here. This isn't like wing nut, you know, weird, nobody actually reads this thing. One popular magazine, ready? 11 wonderful apps to help you manage your anxiety. 11 like, I'm anxious just thinking about how to add one or two more apps to my life, okay? Or 16 things you know, the, 16 things you need to know the next time you say, I'm so OCD. Are you serious? Like, that was written by someone who's obviously so OCD. Or a popular men's magazine. This was amazing. The one thing you need to know to stop procrastinating. All right. The silver bullet. Here it comes. You ready? Quote, in other words, to find out what motivates people, people have to think of their own motivators. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. Once people find what motivates them, they may be able to use that as a real tool to get all the things done they've been, well, unmotivated to do. End quote. Seriously? Like... Was that helpful? What? So, again, if, I'm, if I meet the person that wrote those articles, we need to have perfect courtesy toward them, okay? But the whole point is these answers are totally vacuous. What do you do with that inner deformity of soul? We, no wonder the magazines just keep churning out because last month's seven keys didn't work. So what do you do? Just work harder so you don't have to think about it? Turn up the volume? Hope that some vocational success or a better body, if you finally get those abs you've always wanted, you know, or a better relationship, is that going to quiet the turmoil? I mean, there are all kinds of psychological and even spiritual beauty products for the soul, for sale, all over the place online and and. You know, Google Metrics is going to make sure it shows up for you, you know, tailor-made, at the mall, where, but none of them go deep enough. Because what we all really need is the philanthropy of God, okay? Next point in verse 4. That's exactly what God puts clearly on display when Jesus came to earth. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's Jesus. Okay, Jesus was the personification, the embodiment of the goodness of God. He was so good, so kind to all people. He didn't care about class or race or background. He loved everyone. Whether that meant giving hope to a prostitute that she could be cleansed or a tax collector that he could be forgiven his extortion. 
He had time for children. He elevated women in a patriarchal society. He confronted religious hypocrites. And he died for all peoples from every tongue and tribe and nation and class and on and on and on. All peoples. So God is good. He's kind. If you want to see his goodness, you look at Jesus. Now, do you see the words loving kindness there in verse 4? It's actually one word in the original Greek, okay? And I'm going to say it. I don't usually speak Greek because you guys don't, and actually neither do I. But um, it's no, well, anyway, forget it. Um, philanthropia. Does that sound familiar? So we get the word philanthropy. Do you know what the word philanthropy means? The Phil part, you know, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, friendly brotherly love, the anthropy part, anthropology, okay, the study of humanity. So when the goodness and love for humanity of God appeared, Philanthropy is the desire to promote the welfare of others. And it's usually expressed, especially by the generous donation of resources to good causes. God is the world's greatest philanthropist. He's the greatest benefactor in the universe. He's got more charity, benevolence, and generosity than anyone. He gave his son. He gave everything in the most generous pouring out of resources the world has ever known. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, son of God, in heavenly glory, he had everything. He could have just stayed comfortable there. No. Yet for our sake he became poor, took on flesh, he lived like a peasant. He lived under the cloud of being a bastard. All that shame his whole life. All this shame for us. So he became poor so that we, by his poverty, ultimately the death on the cross, might become rich. We get the riches of his mercy because of that condescension that becoming poor for us. So I hope every one of us welcomes the charity and benevolence of God. It would be the most foolish thing in the world to say to God, I don't want your charity. I can do it myself. So Jesus took on our flesh and blood. He died on a cross to take for us the just penalty for our sin. All that ugliness that we see in the mirror. And I mean the soul mirror, like the deformity of soul. He took all that for us, like Mark mentioned while we were singing in between songs, so God could express. He did that so that God could express and make visible this love for humanity. Brotherly love. How else could he have brotherly love if he didn't become a man to make us his spiritual siblings, that we could be children of God? He did that to de because he desired to promote our welfare. So that's who God is. That's what he's like. God loves humanity. And his love appeared when he sent his son to save us. So let's look a little bit more at what this salvation looks like as it's unpacked in verses 5 to 6, the salvation of God. So verse 5, he saved us. Do you know how deep that desire for salvation is? 
in our culture. It's so deep. It's why the superhero, I mean, this is just one example, maybe stupid to some of you, but one example of why our longing for salvation is so deep is, is they're still making Marvel and DC movies. <laughs> really. It's because we long for someone to come and save us. And you know, there's all these apocalyptic movies that, that come out. Why? Because all these great fears are magnified, writ large, and someone's got to come in and rescue us. It's all an echo of the longing for something. Well, here it is. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So this is the nature of his salvation. It's not by our works. We can't earn it. Salvation is by mercy. It's a gift, an undeserved gift. I heard someone recently, salvation is not achieved, it is received. So mercy's not getting what you deserve. You deserve judgment, but instead you get pardon, you get forgiveness, you get cleansing. We all experience guilt, and guilt is God's way by way of our conscience, the conscience he gave us of kind of lighting up the warning light on the dashboard of our life. We're guilty. We're in trouble. We need a Savior. We need forgiveness, and only the blood of Jesus can cover us, can cover that sin. But, you know, he died 2,000 years ago. How does the work of the cross become real to us? Where it's not just something back there in history that happened, it's something real that we experience as true and wonderful for me, for us. Well, look at it again there in verses 5 and 6. He saves us by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, new spiritual birth. And renewal of the Holy Spirit, poured out richly through Jesus our Savior. So, again, think of our culture, born-again Christian. What's the connotations of that in so many parts of our world? <laughs> like redneck, bigoted, weirdo connotations, right? And yet, the plot line of rebirth stories is all over the place in our culture, in books and movies and TV and everywhere, right? It's in our longings. It's almost like we can't escape our need for new births. So there's a writing site. I mean, there's probably a gazillion of these, but um, it, this is such a common kind of narrative in our culture that, listen, on a writing site, they laid out the stages for rebirth stories. Ready? Number one, a young hero or heroine falls under the shadow of a dark power. Two, for a while, all may seem to go reasonably well. The threat may even seem to have receded. Part of the blindness to it. Eventually, three, the threat returns in full force until the hero or heroine is seen imprisoned in the state of living death. Four, this continues for a long time. When it seems like the dark power has completely triumphed, but five, finally comes the miraculous redemption. That's just like a random secular writing site. So you remember how that happened to Sarah? <laughs> she heard the gospel and lots of people hear the gospel, but it doesn't, nothing happens. It's sunk in by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus won that mercy for her on the cross. The Holy Spirit, as she heard it at that Bible study and in church. That was back when Bill Smith was here. The Holy Spirit made it real to her. 
He made her new on the inside. Her chaotic, messed up world, little world, was ordered all of a sudden, and it began to be filled. She was made new. So she still struggles, just like all of us, but she struggles as a new person. And then Chris, he was washed and and revived spiritually when he was young, but he allowed selfishness and sin to deaden him. But Jesus didn't let go of him. He experienced the deep heart-level renewal that can only be done by the power of the gospel worked in us by the Holy Spirit. So very encouraging. These gifts of grace, they're available to us this morning. But you know what? That's not all. There's even more good news. Not only can God give us new spiritual life and renew us from the inside out, he is planning a day when he's going to renew the whole world. So not only does he, can he order the chaos of our inner world, he's going to one day set the whole world to rights. And for those of us who have received the philanthropy of God through the work of Christ on the cross, the riches of his mercy and grace have only just begun. So when you're regenerated, it means you're born again, right? New birth into a new family. You have a new father, a heavenly father. You are a son or daughter of God, a child of God. And guess what? God owns everything. So what's your inheritance is going to be like? Well, look at verse 7. Look what it means to be an heir of God. Verse 7. He saved us, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we can be made right with God, justified, that's what that word means, not by our efforts, but by grace. It's a gift. So what Jesus did for us on the cross, that becomes real to us, it's ours, and we're justified by his grace so that we might become heirs. Okay, so again, think about the storyline here so that the the sweetness of this sinks in. We owed God an infinite debt. You know the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. It's because sin puts you in debt. That's what our sin does. I mean, just imagine over the course of years, it's so easy to forget about how sinful we are and have been. And I mean, year after year, day after day after day after day after day, this debt accruing growing. I mean, eternal debtor's prison is what we deserve. And then Jesus takes that on him, on the cross, says, it is finished, paid in full. But God doesn't just leave our, our kind of bank account at zero, the balance at zero. Now you better get to work saving up your merit so you can make it in. Okay, I at least cleared your debts. No. He declares us righteous because we're in Christ. It's, we put on the perfect righteousness of Christ like a white robe. We're in Christ. So now we have the right to, to all of God's resources because we're his children. And not only that, but our inheritance is almost beyond belief. And it's all of grace. Salvation is not received, or I'm sorry, has not achieved, it's received. Listen to the way the Apostle Peter writes about this in, in his first letter a little later in the New Testament. In fact, just flip over there a couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> it's on page uh, 1014. So big number one, little number three. 
And there's so many parallels with our text. You just listen for them. Here's what he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. See, it's a gift. We can't do it. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where that new life comes from, the new life that Jesus, he he conquered the grave, and so he can give us new life. So we're born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you, and you are kept by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is really good news. Aren't you glad for the philanthropy of God? Do you see the riches of mercy and grace and hope that are ours if we receive this salvation? We were once guilty and in spiritual debt like over our heads, dead to God, trying to suck life out of all kinds of things that never will satisfy us. And then the goodness, the philanthropy of God appeared and he saved us, not by our works, but by his mercy, by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So one final point now to try to bring this around full circle, okay? So I started the scripture reading with Revelation 21, right? Verses 1 to 5, talking about the day when God will make all things new. And then we read 2 Corinthians 5 where it says that if anyone's in Christ, everyone's a Christian, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So look back to Titus 3. Follow me here. You remember in 3.5 it says that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Well, that word's actually used, the regeneration word is used in only one other place in the whole Bible. And it's on Jesus' lips. And he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, is how it's translated at ESV. It's the same same word. In the regeneration. That's a little weird, right? When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You know, Revelation 21. So it says literally, in the regeneration. Okay, so so what? Again, track with me here, Okay. When God created everything in the beginning, he created good, 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 very good. By his powerful word, as his spirit hovered over the formlessness and emptiness, he brought order to the chaos, fullness to the emptiness. What did our sin do to that? It plunged us into darkness and chaos ensued. It emptied us. Okay, death and corruption, all manner of mess, all around us and within us. So Jesus comes in, plunging into our darkness, not first to judge and condemn, but to save us. And he swallowed, he was swallowed up by our darkness on the cross. But he rose victorious, having swallowed up our darkness by his death in our place. And in Revelation 3.14, it says that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. So when Jesus rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, today, roughly, He was the beginning, the first fruits of all things being made new. That day's coming, and it started that day 2,000 years ago. That's when the cosmic renewal began. And as the good news of his death and our sins for our sins 
takes root in our hearts by His Spirit, we become new creations. Do you see it? The newness starts to spread. The old has passed away. The new has come, just like we heard in those two testimonies. And so regeneration, new life, comes by the power of the gospel, one life at a time, just like Sarah, just like Chris, just like so many of you. And then we are called to live lives that reflect that newness and share the philanthropy of God with others so that they can hear the good news and be made new. Until the day when Jesus comes back and regenerates it all. Total renewal, total regeneration. So regeneration in Titus 3, happening in our hearts. Regeneration in Revelation 21, happening throughout the whole cosmos. So guess what you and I are? If you're a Christian, if you're a new creation in Christ, do you know who you are? Do you know what you are? You're a preview. A preview of coming attractions. You're a preview of the new world. You're a preview of the new creation. You're a preview of Revelation 21. So the all things new newness that we all long for because we know that all is not right in the world, it breaks into our little world, our little interiority, and it starts to change things. It began with Jesus, and it starts and it spreads through us, in us, and then through us until it comes in fullness at the end. See, you're not a preview just for you. You're a preview for those people around you that need to hear that same good news, the same perfect courtesy and loving kindness and philanthropy that God showed you to pass it along. So let's tie this back together with the beginning, verses 2 and 3. Let's say something happens this week where you, you would just love to tell someone off or cut them down or dismiss them condescendingly, patronize, sarcastic, you know, just nastiness, not perfect courtesy. Right there, we need to remember who we were, right? Don't you want that person to encounter the same goodness and loving kindness that you've encountered? Well, maybe that person, maybe God put that person, even their nasty, like, you know, you know, dead-eyed, whatever, in the line, in your way precisely, because that's what you, that's, that's what we were, just on our way to hell. And God appeared. And so you've appeared in this person's life so that you can extend the philanthropy of God to them. But that's not going to happen if you're too busy railing at them for their foolishness or the mistakes that they're making, tsk, tsk, you know, at their sin or whatever, or maybe just indifference. If that's our posture, then they're certainly not going to be encountering the goodness and loving kindness of God through us because we're going to be acting like we're better than them, as if, as if the change that's in us isn't due to mercy, as if we're just superior, as if you made you better instead of God by his grace, if there is anything good in us, as if you and I earned it. And, you know, this pathetic excuse for a human is in a lower class than me. None of that's true. So Christ-like love and humility and courtesy come from never forgetting who we were and realizing 
the wonder and mercy and grace of who we are, children of God, looking forward to what we will be. All things new. So we're going to sing a song to close here. It's an appropriate song for Resurrection Sunday. So uh, let me close in prayer and we'll sing. Oh, Father, we love how generous and rich and merciful you've been toward us in Christ. Please make it real. In Jesus' name, amen.